Verse 5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have fathered you. And in another place he says, I will be his father and he will be my son. But when he again brings his firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And he says of the angels, He makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And a righteous scepter is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. So God, your God, has anointed you over your companions with the oil of rejoicing. And you founded the earth in the beginning, Lord. And the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you continue. And they will all grow old like a garment. And like a robe, you will fold them up. And like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will never run out. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation? Now, hold on. Because we're going to go through a lot of First Testament passages and do a lot of page turning. Okay? So, the author is now ready to develop the point that Jesus is better than the angels. He first said that Jesus is better than the prophets. Now he's saying that Jesus is better than the angels. Now this is an important word that you have to understand. The author of Hebrews uses the word better many, many, many times. Now some people would say, well, why doesn't he just say Jesus best? End of story. Because best has this sense of like, it's undefinable. If you just say he's best, he's okay, best. There's just no, where where do you go with that? At the same time, somebody can become better than best. Okay, because you haven't defined what best is. I mean, when you say he's the best runner because he got the gold medal. Well, technically not. He's just the best of the ones who showed up. There was lots of people in the world who didn't show up to the Olympics. Or he was just the best of that day. Maybe somebody like had a bad breakfast and had indigestion and it really affected their running. I mean, there's so many things that can go on. So to say he's best is so undefinable. But if you say he's better than, now it becomes more concrete. Now it becomes more defined. And so the reality is, it's one thing to say Arnold Schwarzenegger, strong, back in the day. Okay? But if you stand Arnold Schwarzenegger against Urkel, then he looks really strong. Okay? He looks, or Marty McFly, okay, depending on what generation you're from. Um, Urkel was way after me. But Marty McFly from Back to the Future. Okay? He's, he's, better than this. Now, all of a sudden, somebody looks strong. This is what's called a foil and narrative. And a foil is when you put two things next to each other in order to emphasize the one even more. So, a foil, Lot, is a foil to Abraham. Because when Abraham is generous, Lot is saying, I want the best for myself. When Abraham is rescuing Lot, Lot is the one getting captured. And so every time you see Lot doing something, he's always like worse than Abraham, so that Abraham looks better than something. It's one thing to say Abraham was righteous. That's like saying he's best. But then when you see Abraham compared to Lot, when you see Abraham compared to Son of Gomorrah, when you see, when you see this contrast, then it becomes so much more definable. So it's not enough to just say Jesus' best. There were some pretty amazing prophets 
I mean, Moses was so amazing that there's only one sin ever recorded in the Bible about him. I mean, he had lots of sins. But the Bible really likes focusing on the sins of people a lot. And the fact that he only mentions one of Moses, that's pretty significant. And Moses was so great that God says, no one has seen God face to face like Moses. Moses was so great that God said in the end of Numbers, when you see one like Moses appear again, that's the Messiah. Elijah was phenomenal. He got to be taken up into heaven and not experience death. I mean, you've got to be pretty good at walking with God when God says, you don't have to die. I mean, now I don't know where he went after that, but he didn't have to die. And he only, there's only one time that he's ever mistake ever made. And even when he blatantly looks at God, God says, I want to, okay, you can retire, but you have to anoint Hazel, king of Aram. You have to anoint Jehu, king of Israel. And you have to anoint Elisha as your succeeding prophet. And Elijah says, I'm not doing the first two. I'm going to Elisha, I'm getting my succeeder, and I'm done. And even then, God takes him up into heaven. So you look at all these amazing... Jeremiah, his family ridiculed him, abandoned him, called him a traitor. Everybody in Israel was trying to assassinate him because he kept saying, surrender to the Babylonians. You know how unpatriotic that is? Don't fight the enemy. Just give up your guns. That would not go over with the NRA. I mean, and I'm not saying, that's not an anti-gun comment, believe me. Um, but the reality is, it's all of a get political. Um, but Jeremiah has literally lost everybody. The entire, literally, the entire nation has turned against him. If they had CNN back then, he would be doomed. That's commitment. And God says, Jesus is better than the prophets. The angels, we're talking about people who've never sinned. Beings, whatever you want to call them. Yeah, there are fallen angels, but those angels haven't sinned. They've actually stand in the presence of God. They hear literally God's voice. God has entrusted them with the most important things in the universe. Jesus is better than the angels. Now all of a sudden we're getting more concrete. Now all of a sudden we're not just saying best. Now we have pictures being painted in our head of what Jesus is really better than. And so that's important to understand that these words are chosen intentionally. It's not Jesus best. What do you do with that? Jesus better than the prophets. That's a picture. Jesus better than the angels. That's a picture in the mind. And so that's where he's going now. And so prophets, they were sinners who heard secondhand. Jesus is the Son of God. Now angels, well... They're not getting it. They're right there with God. So how do you get better than that? You get better like this. So he quotes. Now, the other reason, so there's two reasons why he's making this point. Why do we have to unpack this? First, angels were called son of God. Israel was called the son of God. And David the king was called the son of God. And so in this chapter, he's going to unpack that. Why is he different than all the other sons of God? The second reason he has to unpack this is because the law was mediated through angels. The law was given from God to angels, to Moses, to humans. So they were so entrusted and so that God gave the law to them before he gave it to Moses. Now I'll give you examples. Deuteronomy thirty-two. Oh, sorry, Deuteronomy thirty-three, verse two. So here's the context. In Exodus 19 through 24, that's the giving of the law. 
So they come out of Egypt. They've been led by the pillar of fire, which has an, its own fuel source because it's God. They're brought to Mount Sinai, and God literally comes down the mountain and fire, earthquakes, tornadoes, everything. And it's so scary that people are like, oh, no, 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 we don't want to talk to God. Now, that's the first mistake. God says, come up to the mountain, join me. I have chosen you to be the new son of God. I want you to have an intimate relationship to me. And they're like, no, you're going to kill us. We don't want to come that close to you. And so God's already like, man, it's been three weeks and you're already failing. And then they turn around and worship a golden calf. Okay, and so he invites them up on the mountain. So they're scared of God, and they don't want to hear it. So God gives them the law from this mountaintop. Now, when you're reading Exodus 19 through 24, you get this image where Moses goes up on the mountain, and God's talking to face to face, and God speaks the law to him, and Moses writes it all down and carries it down. That's the imagery you get in Exodus 19 through 24. But when you come to Deuteronomy 33, verse 2, Moses, this is one of... This is the third speech that Moses is giving to Israel before he goes, sends them off into the promised land that he's not allowed to go into, which is Israel. And in this speech, he's, he's basically rehashing their sins and say, please, new generation, don't screw up like your parents did. Um, and he says this, verse 2, And the Lord came from Sinai and revealed himself to Israel from Seir, which is another word for Sinai. He appeared in splendor from Mount Paran, which is another word. He came forth with 10,000 holy ones. With his right hand, he gave a fiery law to them. So the holy ones are the angels. So he came with thousands of angels. Why? Because a sinner cannot come in the presence of God. Because God is righteous and we are sin. And God is so righteous, his righteousness literally eradicates sin. And he loves us too much to be eradicated when we come to his presence. So there's a part that's saying, you're a sinner, you rebelled against me, I cannot have you in my presence. Just like as much as you love your children, sometimes you have to walk away. But there's another sense that I love you so much, I don't want you to be eradicated by my glory. Because if you are, I can't redeem you. Just like the reason you're walking away from your children is so you don't do anything stupid. Okay? And so... The reality is, you can't. So why? Every single time you see the prophets coming in the presence of God, you see Ezekiel in chapter 6 of Isaiah, sorry, Isaiah in chapter 6 of Isaiah, going up to heaven, surrounded by angels. You see Moses, he's surrounded by angels. You see God coming to eat with Abraham in chapter 18 of Genesis, there's two angels with him. You see Ezekiel going up into heaven, and in chapter 1, he's surrounded by angels. You see Daniel going to heaven, he's surrounded by angels. Because the angels act as a barrier between God and them, so that God's glory doesn't destroy us. Why do you no longer need angels? Because Christ has atoned you with his blood, and the Holy Spirit lives in you. Why are you allowed to have the Holy Spirit today? And no one in the First Testament could, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Because the blood is better than angels. Angels, you're still... It's like, is there somebody, if my wife is standing behind you guys and I'm trying to talk through all of you guys, that's not a great relationship. But if God is living inside of you, that's a really good relationship. All because of the blood. So, why didn't thousands of angels come? Because Moses is a sinner. And they heard the law from God and then mediated it to Moses. So then when you go into um, Galatians chapter 3, 19, into the New Testament, 
Let's go to Acts 7 if we want to go chronologically. Acts 7.38. Now, technically, I should be able to read one verse for you, and that's good enough because the scripture is sufficient. But at the same time, I want you to see how the Bible emphasizes the theme over and over again. Because I think the more times you see the angels doing this, the more it really stands that Jesus is better. Because the more times that God emphasizes or repeats that the angels mediate the law, then when Christ is said to be better, that stands out even more. So in Acts chapter 7, Stephen is giving this speech right before he gets stoned to death. And he says this in Acts chapter 7, verse 38. He says, this is, this is to the man who was in the congregation in the wilderness, and the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and he received the living oracles given to you. Um, so the angel gave the law there. Galatians 3.19 Why then was a law given? It was added because of transgressions until the arrival of the descendant to whom the promise had been made. It was administered or mediated or initiated through angels by an intermediary. So Deuteronomy tells us that the angels were present there. Paul tells us that the law came through angels. And Christ is better than the angels. So that's the first reason you need to know that Christ, why this is so important. Yes, yes. It could be that there's the angel of the Lord. Now, in my opinion, I don't think the angel of the Lord is a specific angel that keeps showing up over and over again. I think the angel of the Lord is whatever angel God picks at that time to be the leader, the designator. Because the other thing we're going to learn later in Numbers chapter 14, we're told that there is angels surrounding Israel so that Israel can have connection to God without being destroyed in His glory. But God has also picked an angel to specifically be ahead of all the other angels for Israel. Because in in, um, Exodus 32, when they sin, God says, that's it, I'm no longer going to be with you people. I invite you to the mountain, and they said, no, I'll kill you. And now they've committed the golden calf sin. I'm not going with you anymore. I'm going to send the angel to lead you in. He's going to do it. You're no longer going to have me. You're only going to have the angel. And later in Daniel chapter 9 and 10, we're going to learn that that's Michael. So God picked Michael to be kind of the head angel of all the angels for Israel. Um, So there are multiple angels there, but there was one chosen specifically to be the head angel of them all. And then we're going to learn in Daniel 9 that there's also a head angel over Persia, a head angel over Greece. So each nation has a head angel over them, even though there's multiple angels there. So in this sense, this is why it's also important that Christ is also better than that angel as well. Um, because that's the point that Revelation is going to make, where the Jehovah Witnesses say that Michael and Jesus are the same thing. The problem is, is in Jude, Michael won't rebuke the devil, because only God's allowed to do that. But Jesus always rebukes the demons and the devils in his ministry. So, and we're told that Jesus in Revelation says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And every Jehovah Witness will tell you that only God is that, and no angel, not even Michael, is the beginning and the end. So there are ways to show that Jesus is totally different than Michael. And that he's not just the New Testament version of Michael. So that's probably what's going on there. Now there's two reasons why he's going to quote the Old Testament so much. First, the Jews respect the Old Testament. That's the ultimate authority. It was given to them by God. And you really, 
You've got to really deal with the First Testament. As much as we're in the New Testament now, you have to deal with the First Testament because God spoke the First Testament and He doesn't change His mind. So if you're going to show something new, I mean, Christ has always existed, but He's new in human history at this time period. You've got to go to the First Testament. You can't just say Jesus is new. And you can't quote the Second Testament, the Gospels, because the Jews don't embrace that. They don't accept that. So if you want to show that Jesus this is truth. You have to go to the First Testament. The second reason is it shows that Jesus is not new. Even though he's new on the scene in his incarnation, he's not new in the picture. This has been God's plan all along. And so this is why he's going here. And so in verse 5, we're given the first reason that Jesus appeared to the angels. He is God's Son, and they are not. So he starts with that. Though they may be called the Son of God, they're only the Son of God because they're a direct creation of God. The Son of God means that you're directly created by God and you have headship. So there are five sons of God in the Bible. There's Adam and Eve. Yes, it's a non-gender Son of God title. Um, sorry, let's do it in order. There's the angels. They're the sons of God. There's Adam and Eve, because Adam and Eve were directly created by the hand and the word of God by being pulled out of the dirt. And they were given ultimate headship over the planet. However, they lost the right to be the Son of God when they fell. The next Son of God is Israel. The third Son of God is Israel. Not because they were a direct creation of God, not because they had headship over the planet, but because God wanted to recreate them, redeem them into something new and better so that they could have headship over the world so He could regain paradise lost through them. But they failed over and over again. Three weeks in, they failed. So they never obtained the Son of God title, even though he called them that. The fourth one is Jesus Christ, because he literally is God, and his physical body was directly created by the hand of God when the angel said, and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will conceive Mary. The fourth one is you and I. Anyone who has the Holy Spirit is a son of God, son and daughters of God. Why? Because Peter and Paul say that we've now been given the right to be called sons of God because we have been adopted into the family of the Son of God and the Holy Spirit is in us, transforming us and renewing us by the transforming of our mind so that we become a new creature in Christ. So that in the end, we will actually be able to become what Israel was supposed to become, but failed because the law could not make them that, but the Holy Spirit can. So, the thing is, but Jesus is the Son, because He is God. Not because He was directly created by God, not because He was adopted as a Son of God, not because He was given the right to be one, because He is the Son of God, ontologically, in His essence. And so that's the first point he makes. He's going to quote two passages, Psalm 2.7 and 2 Samuel 7.14. Now here's the problem. When you read these in their context, they have nothing to do with the point that Hebrews is making. And you're like, wow, I was always taught not to take things out of context. And the author of Hebrews is totally violating that. He's not. And that's what my hope is, to help you understand. When you read these things, if you did go back and read them in the the First Testament and thought, I don't see it. My hope is to help you see it. Okay, so, Psalm 2-7 is the first one. It is quoted three times in the First Testament. 
The first time is in Hebrews 5 where he makes the point that Christ is superior to angels. Psalm 2.7 in this context has nothing to do with that. He then quotes it a second time in Hebrews 5.5 proving that Christ was appointed as a high priest which Psalm 2.7 has nothing to do with that. And then he quotes it again in Acts 13.32 in order to authorize Christ's resurrection from the dead which Psalm 2.7 has nothing to do with that. Then he goes to Psalm two, or 2 Samuel 7.14 in order to emphasize that Jesus God's Son, which has nothing to do with Jesus in 2 Samuel 7. So how do we deal with that? I'm going to start with 2 Samuel 7.14 because that's where it all begins. Welcome to story time. So everybody turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. The context. 2 Samuel 7. So David is finally king. He was anointed king when he was around 12 years old. And then he spent like years running from Saul. He finally becomes king. He finally takes the throne of Israel at the age of 40 years old. And one of the first things he does is he conquers Jerusalem. Jerusalem was occupied by the Jebusites. And he conquers Jerusalem. He takes it. He makes it his capital. And he moves the throne there. Now before this time period, the first king that we have is Saul. And Saul's, Saul never had a throne because he was too busy running around everywhere trying to kill David. And it never really had a permanent place. And then when he finally died, his throne was succeeded by Ibosheth, Ishbosheth, sorry, Ishbosheth, his son. Technically, David's not the second king, he's the third. Ishbosheth takes the throne, and he just willy nilly spineless king. So David finally becomes king, and he's the man after God's heart, the one that God wanted all along. And so he conquers Jerusalem, and finally, for the first time ever, the throne is secure. He finally drives all the Philistines and the enemies out of Canaan, which they were supposed to do a long time ago. You can finally, for the first time, officially call it Israel, belonging to the chosen people of God. And then he expands the borders and begins to actually influence the nations around him. And he brings peace for one of the first times ever in Israel's history. So the throne is secure, and it's permanent, and it's not going to move. Ever, um, and so, but at the same time, one of the first things he does, he moves the tabernacle in. And the tabernacle was a tent, and it just moved around all the time. And the beauty is, is that that way, no one could claim access to God more than anybody else. And you knew that even if the tabernacle was like seventy-five miles away, you knew in a couple of months it would make its way up to you, and you would have access. So. It was that relationship. It's like somebody walking around the house. You don't have to always go to them. So, but David's thinking, wouldn't it be really cool if like, the access to God was here, the kingship of God is here, the priesthood of God is here, it's all in one place, we all have it here. So he goes to God and he says, I want to build you a temple. It's not right that I'm living in this really nice permanent palace of stone and you're in this tent. Now God immediately says No. If I want your advice and your great ideas, I would have asked you. Um, and, and that's basically what he said, because one of the points that God is saying is he's emphasizing the aseity of God. And the aseity of God is that he's self-sufficient and doesn't need anybody. And one of the points that God makes is, you do not make my name great, I make your name great. You can, you can praise me, but you do not make me great. I don't need you to make me great. I make you great because I'm better than you, so to speak. I love you so much that I'll lift you up, but you can't lift me up. 
So one of the reasons is like, I don't need a temple to make myself great. And then he also says, like, look, if I wanted a temple, that would have been plan A. I like the mobile tent. I like going everywhere. But then he got this weird thing where he's like, okay, but I'll let your son build the temple. And you're like, what? <laughs> but part of the reason is, he is making the point that this should be my idea, but he's also making the point that the temple is, tab- is the tabernacle is temporary, and it's not really that great to look at. But the temple is permanent, and it was glorious. It was considered one of the great wonders of the ancient world. And everything points to Christ. So the tabernacle foreshadows the first coming of Jesus Christ, where he temporarily comes, as John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God, and the Word tabernacled among us. That's what the Greek says. So he dwelt among us. But there was nothing impressive about the way that he looked. But if you walked into the tabernacle, Christ, so speak, it was incredibly glorious and amazing. But he was only temporary here. But the second coming of Christ is a permanent temple where he's unmovable, he's glorious on the outside and the inside, and he will forever be here. And so that's part of what God is doing here is he's, he's foreshadowing a first and second coming of Christ, a temporariness and a permanentness. And so, so he says he wants to do this. So this is where God makes the Davidic covenant with him. It makes him a promise. So the author quotes 714. I will become his father. Um, Let's back up. Verse 12. When the time comes and you die, I will raise up for your descendants one of your own sons to succeed you, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will make his dynasty permanent. Now, obviously, he's talking about Solomon, because Jesus isn't going to come and build a temple, because the temple will be built before he gets there. And Jesus is not a dynasty. You, you have to have multiple descendants to have a dynasty. Now, Jesus is part of the dynasty, but he's not the dynasty. So it's obviously not Jesus, even though the author says it is Jesus. So then he goes, I will become his father and he will become my son. And this is one of the first places that God literally says, I'm going to adopt your descendants as my son. When they're immediately born and anointed, they will become my sons. When he sins, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the wounds inflicted by human beings. So there you go. It's not about Jesus because Jesus is not going to sin to need discipline. But my loyal love will not be removed from him as I removed it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will stand before me permanently. Your dynasty will be permanent. So he makes this promise that all your descendants will be kings. Boom, 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 down the line. However, when they sin, I'll punish them. But I'll punish them with the rod of men, not the wrath of God, which is implied. See, Saul, when he took priesthood upon himself, and he did a bunch of other things, I punished him with the wrath of God. He lost the right to be king. He lost the right to be anointed. I took the Holy Spirit away from him. I sent an evil spirit, and then I killed him. But you, I'll make you a covenant and a promise forever. If your sons sin, and oh, they will sin. If you've ever read the book of Kings. I will give them temporal punishments. Nothing that will make them lose the throne forever. That's my promise to you. They will hold it permanently. Now, there's only two ways that can happen. Either God will always make sure there's a son sitting in the throne forever, or one of these sons will eventually live forever. Now, it can't be the first one, because the fact that they're taken into exile and there's not anybody sitting on the throne, 
And the fact that there's nobody sitting in the throne right now means that it actually didn't turn out to be that one. So either God does not honor his promises or he meant the second one. So even though Psalm 7 is not really about God making Jesus his son, it really kind of is. Does that make sense? Because Jesus is the only one who can actually become the one who holds the throne forever. And so his point is, I promise David's descendants to have the throne forever. What is the point that Matthew makes? Jesus is David's son. And the genealogy of chapter 4. What's the point that Luke makes? He goes all the way back to Adam and says, the son of God. Well, if Adam is the son of God, and Jesus comes from him, then Jesus is the son of God. I love Mark. Everybody thinks Mark has no genealogy. He does. It's verse 1. Jesus, the son of God. That's the genealogy. God, Jesus. He's just like, because John's just like, Mark just gets to the point. And John has one too. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They all have genealogies. They just make different points. And they're all making the point, Matthew especially makes the point, that he's the King David. Okay? In fact, the number of genealogies in Matthew is the exact same number that all the letters of David form, numerically. Making that point. And so the reality is, this is the biological son of David. He fulfills that promise. But he's the only one that can permanently hold that throne. So when Jesus was born, and the Holy Spirit came, and Jesus, God said, this is my son, and whom I'm well pleased, and at the transfiguration with John, James, and John, and, or James, John, and Peter, he says, this is my son, do everything that he says. This is when he becomes a son. Now, remember, Hebrews makes the point he always has been the son, but now he's becoming the Davidic son as well. He's ontologically the son of God and always has been, according to Hebrews verse 1. But now this is what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's taking the ontological image son of God, of Jesus in heaven, and he's marrying it to the earthly Davidic sonship language. He's bringing heaven and earth together. Because here's the thing, sonship is this. In the ancient world, you did what your father did. The only way you did what your, did something than what your father did is if you could beg and get some guy to take you as your apprentice. But most people who didn't have their own sons typically were kind of loners and didn't want like some ding-dong little kid walking around all over the place and being annoying. I mean, even the movies portray that. But your, but your own son, that's worth investing into. There's a, there's a connection there. So most of the time, you did what your father did. Your father was a farmer, you're a farmer. Your father worked in the coal mines, you work in the coal mines. There's no escaping. That's relatively new in the last couple generations. So sonship language means you are a spitting image of your father. You look like your father, you act like your father, you do what your father does, you're supposed to bear the character of your father. I mean, that's when it says, wow, you fell far from the apple tree. I mean, you're nothing like your father, and that shocks people. And so when God says, you're going to be my son, he's saying, you're to be like me. You're to rule like me. You're to execute justice like me. You're to tell the truth about God. That's the purpose of the king. But David can't do it. Solomon can't do it. Rehoboam can't do it. Asa couldn't do it. And on and on and on and on. Until Jesus comes. And he goes through the temptation in the desert. And doesn't sin. 
and on and on and on. And so 2 Samuel 7 is not really about Jesus, but it is really about Jesus. Does that make sense? And so this is where what's called the typology begins to get developed. Now, I wish we could talk about typology. That's like a whole other Bible study in itself. Typology is one of the coolest things, I think. That's what excites me. But typology is God never really, rarely does he ever predict something and then fulfill it. That's the way we think as Greeks. We think, oh, you predict something and then it happens. The way that God likes to do is he does it and he repeats it bigger and he repeats it bigger and he repeats it bigger and then he repeats it better than everything else. And so what you see is you see the garden, but the garden was lost. So what does he do? He builds this little family called Abraham's family where he'll actually come and eat with them a little bit. Not quite the garden, but it's closer than anything that anybody else had. But then he does it bigger. He repeats it again. He does it bigger. And now you have the tabernacle, where God's glory is actually going to come in and dwell it. And then you have Israel around it. But that's not quite the same thing. So he does it even bigger. Now he builds a temple and expands the nation of Israel and brings peace and Solomon reigns over it. But that's not quite heaven either in the garden. So he does it even bigger where Jesus literally comes and tabernacles among us. And in John chapter 2 it says, tear down this temple in three days, I'll rebuild it. And so they did not know that he was talking about his own body. Well, you don't get any better than that. But still it could get better because then Jesus comes back a second time and the kingdom of God comes down to earth and the Garden of Eden is back on earth again. That's typology. Typology is when you have something like the tabernacle and it points to something bigger and better that God's going to do until eventually he does it best or better and it becomes the ultimate fulfillment. And the sacrificial land, you got an animal being sacrificed for Adam and Eve's sins. That's great because now they're not going to die. Still not that great. But then he develops a whole sacrificial system where you can actually have access to the glory of God. But then Jesus, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, actually comes. And all these imageries, they get done again and again and again and again until they just become what they're meant to be. So you start the typology here. You have this little king who's been promised an eternal dynasty, which is great, but is that really what God was going for? No. No. So then he does it again and again and again and again until ultimately you get to Jesus who literally is going to be the king forever until ultimately you get it again, repeating again where he comes actually to the throne on earth. And so this typology is where you can't just read one verse. You have to read all the verses and how they're developing those themes. So let's go to, now let's go to the first one he quotes. Psalm 2 verse 7. Everybody turn there. So here's the context. Verse 1, Why do you nations rebel? Why are the countries devising plots that will fail? The king of the earth form a united front. The rulers collaborate against the Lord and his anointed king. They say, let us tear off the shackles they've put on us. Let us free ourselves from the ropes. So these verses, David is writing, and he says all these nations think they're going to throw God off. We'll show you God. We'll rebel and we'll stop obeying you and throw your authority off. Your authority means nothing. I'm greater than you. So what does the author, what does David have to say? The one enthroned in heaven laughs in disgust. The Lord taunts them. Then he angrily speaks to them and terrifies them in his rage, saying, I myself have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Not possible. 
I am God. I then saw my king in Zion. What is Zion? Zion is the name of Jerusalem when you're trying to marry kingship and priesthood together. Because basically in Zion, during David's time, you had this hill moving up Jerusalem. And the, halfway up the hill, you had the throne of David. And at the top of the hill was Mount Moriah, where Abraham almost sacrificed his son, and Solomon would build the temple. And so in one part of the hill, you have the throne, and in the other part of the hill, you have the, the priesthood. So you have the two most important offices on the same hill, and Zion becomes that name. So Zion means king and priest together in a geographical location. So he says, why is it impossible? Because my son, David, is in Zion. And I've promised him eternal dynasty. I've promised him a powerful nation. He is my representative on earth. And as long as I'm backing him, you'll never throw off my authority. Now, did any of the kings of David's descendants really truly maintain that and hold the sovereignty of God over all the nations? No. So did David really fulfill that passage? Did any of the descendants? No. So the first question you would ask yourself as you get into the book of Kings, wow, the Psalms didn't really come true. God says it's impossible for anybody to throw off his authority because the Davidic king is in Zion. But the Davidic kings did a really crappy job. And eventually all the nations rebelled against them. Eventually they lost their authority. And eventually Israel got carried off into exile. So man, the promises of God didn't really get true, fulfilled, until Jesus comes along. And he is the Davidic king enthroned in Zion. And then later when we get to Psalm 110, God will make the nations his footstool. Now when I was a little kid, I always thought that meant that like the enemies are this little ottoman. And they're like on their hands and board and they're just putting the feet up there and kicking back. And then I realize it's like, hoorah, domination, putting your foot on them, stepping on their teeth, WWF wrestling. Um, so the point is that Christ is the only Davidic king that can actually fulfill Psalm 2-7. And so how are you supposed to understand this? Psalm 2-7 then taps in to that typology. So Second Samuel, you're reading this, you're thinking, okay, that means there's got to be somebody sitting on the throne all the time. Well, as you get through Kings, you begin to realize that's not happening. So there's got to be more, right? So then you get to Psalms, and Psalms keeps developing the, the Davidic typology. And God says, no nation will ever rebel because the Davidic king is in Zion. And you're like, yeah, but as I'm reading through the Kings, that's not really happening. So you, are the promises of God failing? Which isn't that what every Jew thought. You get carried off into exile. And God made all these promises. You will be my chosen people. You will be a holy nation. You'll be a kingdom of priests. I will establish you as a nation over all the other nations. No longer will there ever be land of milk and honey. And they're in exile now. And they're thinking, are the promises of God not valid? And then you go 400 years and there's no prophet that ever speaks. And you're dominated by the Greeks. And you're dominated by the Romans. You're like, all the promises of God are failing. And then the Son of God, David's own son, comes into the picture. And he starts doing things that no other king could ever do. And now all of a sudden you begin to realize, this is it. This is the forever king. This is the king in Zion that no nation can question. And you begin to realize the promises of God haven't failed. And so in some sense you feel like Psalm back then has nothing to do with what Hebrews is saying it means. 
Once you begin to realize that Jesus is the true Davidic king because he is the son of God, heaven king, you begin to realize that it, exactly what Psalms meant. Does this, does this make sense? And so you begin to realize what it feels on the surface he's ripping out of the context. He's not ripping out of the context because here's what you must realize. God never meant for you to just quote verses. Now, I'm not saying that's wrong. Quote verses, memorize them, hide them in your heart. But when he has you quote verses, he wants you to quote the theme that that verse is developing. This is what you're supposed to do. You should study the typology so that when you quote a Bible verse, the typology, how every book of the Bible floods in your head. And that's what you're quoting. You should memorize scripture verses. You should quote them. But know that you should be quoting a typology. And yes, scripture is powerful when you claim it and quote it. But how much more powerful would it be if you realize that that's one verse of many verses developing this big concept? And so when the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 2-7, and it feels like he's violating the context, he's not, because he's... He's invoking the greater context of the entire First Testament. And every Jew had the Torah memorized, the Torah memorized, the first five books of the Bible by the time they were 12. And all the Pharisees had the whole Bible memorized. And every Jew knew the Bible well. So when he's quoting one verse, it's like that joke where those people are in prison and some guy just says 31 and everybody laughs. And they say 35 and everybody laughs. And then the new guy says, what is going on? And they're like, well, we see, we've told these jokes so many times that we just decide to number them all because it's so much quicker. So then when we just say the number, everybody knows the joke and they just start laughing. And that's the reality. I can either, as the author of Hebrews, spend the entire, just recopy the entire First Testament, or I can quote one verse, but because you're a Jew who spent your entire life studying the Bible, that one verse immediately brings to mind the greater typology. But the problem is we don't do typology anymore. And so we read this and we think, wow, you just kind of took that out of context. And so this is why I would love to teach another class where I could just develop all these typologies for you. Because in some way, I hope I'm doing this better than what you've ever seen it before. But at the same time, there's so much more. And it gets way cooler. So this, this is at least, does this kind of make sense? And so he's tapping into this. So every verse he quotes now is just going to keep... So now he's got you going. And so now he's just going to throw the other verse and say, remember this part of the typology? Remember that part of the typology? It's kind of like when you're a family and everybody's like, hey, Dad, remember the time? You're like, oh, yeah, da, da. And the new guy is like, I don't know that story. But, it, but it's pain because you have an experience with these people. And you just had to be there. And that's what he's doing here. He's quoting a verse since this week. It just kind of had to be there. And the be there is the first testament and the typology that's being developed. And so he's unpacking this typology for them. 